We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Start by looking at Romans 7.12 again. Pat already read it, but let's just read it again as a way of getting things going. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Title of the message today, if you're into titles, here we go. The law is good, so what's your problem? We're going to start with the law is good, and then the second part is what's your problem? See, it's easy. You know where we're going. Some of you are saying, oh, good, I can leave. No, hang out. The law is good. Uh, there's a website. It's called WebMD. Uh, you go onto WebMD, and you can type in your symptoms. And uh, my experience with WebMD is it gives you basically a range of answers. You type in your symptoms. I have uh, congestion in my sinuses. And it's going to give you two answers. One is, uh, you've probably got seasonal allergies, take a Benadryl. The other one is, put your affairs into order. Uh, you're a week away from punching out. And basically, these are the two kinds of answers you get. You and you can go home, try it. We have a type in any symptom. Somewhere in the answers is going to be, we hope you have a will. Because you're done. With whatever symptom it is. So at the end of the day, you, you can tend to sort of start to take, well, it's useless. I mean, there's no way it's really useful as a diagnostic tool to help me understand, am I dying or do I just need to take a nap? What, what is the situation here? And sometimes we can feel that way about the law of God. What's the answer from the law of God? You go to the law, so to speak. We've learned this in the book of Romans. Hey, I'm a sinner. I've broken some of your rules, law. So what's the deal? You're dead. But, but I just envied a little. I didn't murder my neighbor. I, it feels like if I type in, I envied a little this weekend, or I murdered my neighbor, the answer is still the same. I'm still dead. And so it feels, Mr. Law, like maybe you could just simmer down a little. Like maybe we could take some of these things more seriously than others. But the answer from the Bible is this. The law is good. The law is holy, and the law is righteous. And I want us to look at the first couple of verses of Romans, uh, or at least our passage here, verses 7 and, and following, and help us to understand why the law is good. Because it's really, it's really important for us as believers that we understand how that's working. Here's the point. The law provides us exactly what we need. The law provides us exactly what we need. The law provides us what we need, and it's really good, and we don't like it. So the law tells us exactly what we need to be told, and it provides exactly the information we need, and we don't like what it has to say. Look at verse 7 
Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? No, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the first thing the law does for us is it tells us what's right and wrong. That's one little piece of what it means to know what sin is. The Bible says you shouldn't envy. So, okay, that's helpful information. I shouldn't envy. So I know what is right and I know what is wrong. But the law does much more than that. When we look at the Word of God and everything God is telling us, God is telling us more than just don't envy your neighbor. What God is telling us is I'm enough for you. And when you envy, it's not merely that you want more stuff than you have or more stuff than your neighbor has. You want something other than me. And the law tells us what is good and right, not merely as an arbitrary right and wrong, but as it connects with the nature of God himself. And so our understanding of what's right and wrong from the scripture is not just simply good people do this and good people don't do this. What the Bible is telling us is this is what God is like and to desire anything other than God is to miss the point because there's nothing more than uh, more that we could have other than God. So sin's nature is revealed in my experience with the law. A number of different ways. First of all, we all struggle with envy. That's the example Paul uses here in Romans 7 by the, example, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we all know what it means to envy. Envy is uh, revealed in a number of ways. Number one way we envy is we have plenty of stuff, but we want more stuff. When do you want, stop, want stop wanting more stuff? I have no idea when that happens. Envy is also revealed as I want what other people's stuff has. I, I want what they have. They don't deserve what they have. What they have, actually, I deserve more. I don't understand why they have it. They shouldn't have it. And I want more of what they deserve, think they deserve they have because I deserve it more. So if, God, if things were really fair, notice how envy reveals what I think of God. If God were really fair, he would give me what that guy has because I deserve it more. In fact, if I had it, I would have more of it because I deserve it more than that Yahoo. And of course, you're talking about somebody who lives in your home. Perhaps. Maybe that's just me. Okay? So this is, and what the law does, then it comes in and says, you know what, you shouldn't envy. And then at this point, what do we say? You may as well tell me not to breathe. I mean, how, what do you mean tell me not, now I'm not supposed to envy. The only the way to be rightly related, related to God is to not envy. How is that even possible? And now we get really frustrated with the law. We want to tell the law to take a hike. Maybe, Mr. Law, what you should say, you tell us to try not to envy. Or maybe a better rule would be this. Envy less next week than you do this week, and over the course of time, envy less. The law doesn't say that. What does the law say? If you envy, you die. That seems a little harsh. But what the law does is it reveals what sin is like. Sin is deadly. Even the, the not, naughty sins, like envy. That nobody has a problem with envy. There are other sins where we say, oh yeah, you should die for that, like murdering your neighbor. But envy, we don't have a problem with envy. So the law reveals what sin is really like, and sometimes we're not convinced of it. We think, well, sin isn't deadly. I mean, sure, it's bad, but it doesn't kill you. But the reality is the Bible teaches that sin becomes a barrier between us and God, and what is the source of life? God is the source of life. So if there's a barrier between us and God, the Bible says it quite plainly, we're dead, as uh, Seth mentioned uh, this morning. 
So we, we know sin. The Bible tells us what's right and wrong. It also tells us that we can't live up to it. It also tells us that we, it kills us. And then on top of all of that, every now and then, not you guys, we even feel bad about our sin. So the law is providing all these wonderful benefits. It tells us we're not living right. Tells us we can't live right. Tells us that we're dying because we can't live right. And we feel terrible about it. Remind me again why the law is good, right? It tells us what we need to know. And we don't want to hear it. Look at verse 10, Romans 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. How does the law promise life? The, the law is God communicating to us how to worship Him. The Bible tells us, here's what God is like, and here's how you worship Him. And so the, when we have a relationship with God where we can worship Him, that means we are experiencing life with God. And the, and the law was supposed to provide the means. Okay, if you do these things and believe these things and, and live out this particular way, you have access to God, you can worship God in His ways, and you will experience life. But instead, when I, when I try to obey the law and do the things God calls me to do, I can't do them. And instead of being a source of life, the law becomes a source of condemnation. It doesn't provide me the means to access to God. It actually creates an even greater barrier to God. Why does the law do this? This is going to bother you because you're Americans. I'm making an assumption. There may be some folks here who, this morning who aren't Americans. You, live, you happen to find yourself in the United States. Here's the thing. Are you ready? God likes to be worshipped a particular way. When God made known who he is and what he is up to, he said, you will worship me in this way. And that is the way he's to be worshipped. He is not asking us to worship him in any old way we want. He's asking us to worship him in the way that he has called us to worship him. An example. Next Sunday, February 14th. Guys, you're writing this down. It is a very important day on the calendar. It is the annual anniversary of Oregon becoming a state. <laughs> on that day, we also exchanged roses and whatnot for some reason. Okay, so on Valentine's Day, you are going to buy something for someone you care about. If you are good at buying gifts, I'm not saying you are because I have no way of knowing. If you are good at buying a gift for the person that you are going to buy a gift for, you are trying to think of something that they want. Right? And this is normal, isn't it? And some of you guys are saying, here's what you're saying. I know. I know she wants a drill press. I mean, I, I, I had it in a dream. I had a vision. And if she voluntarily chooses not to use it, and so I put it in the shop, that's, that's her choice, right? So this is, this is a common thing in human relationships. It's not that complicated. In human, healthy human relationships, we're trying to bridge a connection with another individual to understand their perspective, where they're coming from. And when we have affection and love for them, we actually sacrifice something of our own to provide to them because we think, why? They'll like it. It'll bring them delight. It'll bring them joy. They will enjoy knowing that I know them or that you know them to such a degree you would, would know what to get them. And then we turn to, in our relationship with God and we decide, I get to do it however I want. We, we approach human relationships in a, a very normal way. Then we approach our, our relationship with God as though he is an apparition, a figment of our imagination that we get to worship him any way we want. If we have a thing that we have made and we get to worship it however we want, what do you call that? That's called an idol. So calling a thing God 
and worshiping it how you want does not make it less of an idol. God is to be worshipped in the manner in which He calls us to worship Him. The law tells us how. The law is God making Himself known to us what He is like, and He says, you will worship Me in this manner. We worship God in a particular way in regard to who God is. Quick example of this. Back a long time ago, I think it was about 1,500 years before Christ, people of Israel found themselves in Egypt. They were slaves. People of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God, through his servant Moses, redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And that is the word that is used, redeemed out of. When the people were in Egypt, were they worshiping God and that is why he came and redeemed them out of Egypt? No, the Bible is quite clear they were worshiping idols in Egypt. God redeemed them out of Egypt from their slavery, even though they weren't worshiping him. Redeemed them out, remember Passover, blood on the doorpost, all that thing? They passed through the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, so to speak, as the Bible tells us. And now they are God's people in the wilderness. And what happens straight away? God descends on mount, the mountain and he reveals to his people how they are to worship him. So he is up on the mountain telling Moses, you are to build a tabernacle and do not envy and do not kill and don't move a boundary stone. And if you got mold in your bathroom, tear the bathroom out, all kinds of things. While this law is being revealed to Moses, what are the people doing? Making an idol. Remember the cow, the little golden calf? They threw golden jewelry into a pot, put it on the fire, and a cow jumped out, according to Aaron. And so they are worshiping this cow. Why are they doing this? Because they have decided we can worship God in any way we see fit. They weren't ignoring God. They could see the mountain full of smoke. He was right there. But they created this calf so they could have a tangible thing of who God is. Remember what Aaron said. Get up and celebrate. Here is your God who delivered you from Egypt. It's crazy, we think. All they're doing is deciding we can worship God on our terms and not His terms. What are God's terms of relationship? Well, let's look at the law. Build the tabernacle. What if you want to go in and talk to God? What do you have to do? You have to have a priest who will go in on your behalf. And that priest will not go in empty-handed. He will sacrifice an offering. And blood will be shed. And blood will be poured out that God might be, uh, uh, that your sin might be atoned for in front of God. So does God want us in his presence? The answer is yes. Do we just get to saunter in any old way? Build an idol, paint a picture, do whatever we want? The answer is no. The Bible tells us we come into God's presence, His way, which is through sacrifice. That there must be a sacrifice that we might be in God's presence. And we're to worship Him in that particular way. This was the stumbling block for Israel for all of their history. They did lots of things wrong, but the reason that they were kicked out of the land is because they refuse to worship God according to His ways. Because the law is good, it tells us what God is like. We worship God in a manner that He would be worshipped. Not, not an idol. Not a, a creation of our imagination. God is to be worshipped according to His uh, terms. A uh, quick question, then we're going to get on into what's your problem. Uh, which I know you've been looking forward to. Did God love Israel? Yeah, did He love Israel in Egypt? When they're worshiping idols, yes. Did they love Egypt? Did they love Israel in the wilderness when they were griping and complaining? Yes. Did they love Israel in the promised land when they were sort of obedient? Yes. Did they love Israel in the promised land when they weren't obedient? Yes. How about in Babylon when they had been kicked out of the land? 
Yes, God loves them. The love of God is not up for question here. The question is, do the people of Israel and do we, knowing God loves us, respond to him according to how he wants to be responded to? How would God have us respond to him today? Do we have a priest? Yeah, the Bible tells us his name is Jesus. Does he have blood? Yeah, the Bible tells us he he poured his own blood out. Do we therefore have access to God? Yes, we do have access to God. Because we have a priest and we have blood. So what is the means by which we have access to God? It is by grace through faith alone. Through Christ alone. We must understand the only way we have the ability to relate with God in any way, shape, or form is Christ. There is no other way to walk into the presence of God other than the atoning work of Jesus and his function as our priest. You don't get to pray to Jesus and uh, pray to the Father because... You're a good person this week. That's a good one. Let's think about that for a minute. I'm off script, Seth. We're going to be late. How many times have you prayed and wondered if God heard you because you were bad this week? Nobody here, obviously. You guys would never be bad. Have you ever prayed and you like really need something and you're praying and boy, you really need it. Like it's one. God, if you don't show up, I'm toast. And then all of a sudden, in the back of your mind, you go, "Oh no, I did that thing." Like twice. And both were on purpose. They weren't even accidents. I didn't even stumble into it. Oh, there's no way God's going to hear me. What I just do? I just decided to worship God according to my terms. Because God only hears the prayers of people who don't sin. That's not what the scripture says. That's me seeking to say God answers prayer because I'm awesome sauce. What does the Bible say is the reason God answers prayer? Because Jesus is awesome. So I can go into the presence of God and pray, and I worship him by praying even though I'm not perfect. Now, God may bring it up, and so I'm going to need to be honest about what's going on in my life, but he doesn't hear my prayer because I'm a good Christian. He hears my prayers because I have a good priest. And that's what the Bible tells us, and that's good. But the fact is, we actually like the idea that God answers our prayer because we're good, because that means we're awesome. And the Bible teaches us humility in our prayer to recognize he only hears us because Jesus died for us and is raised from the dead. God loves us. He loves us as we are. But the righteous requirements of worship of God says don't stay there. Seek to worship God with our life by saying no to those things that we know displease God and saying yes to those things that bring him great glory as an act of worship because we have access into his presence. The law is... Good. So, what's your problem? Here we go. I don't know if you've ever had a grease fire in your kitchen. Um, I hear it's bad. I'm going to say it that way. Uh, so you put, um, this is what I've heard uh, happens. You put a pot of grease on because you're fry some chicken or something like that. And then you go and you forget it's there and it overheats and then it catches fire. Right. So now you've got a pan of flaming grease in your kitchen. And some of you are going, yeah, it's Monday. That's how we cook. Uh, So you've got a pan of flaming grease. So you do the perfectly reasonable thing. You grab a bucket of water. See, you did have it happen. Nice try. You act, no, I've never had it happen. And then when I tell the water thing, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what happens next. So you take the pan of water, throw on the grease. Does the fire go out? No. Does the fire get bigger? Yes. And it's in more places. So you have something that is good. Water is supposed to put fire out. It's, do the math. Fire, water, take away the oxygen, 
no problem. But a grease fire, you need to throw something dry on it to put it out. Well, here's the thing. You're, you, you feel bad about your sin. You want to know God. And so you say, you know what I ought to do? I ought to get some rules going in my life. I ought to put, I should make a list. I mean, it's the New Year sort of. I should make a list of things I'm not going to do anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really try hard this year to make sure God is happy with me. And we, this makes sense. If I am a sinner and I'm doing bad things, the fix is throw some law on it. And what happens? Let's see. Let me explain. It gets worse. Look what it says in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what he is explaining, I've got this sin and I want to get over it. So I throw into my life a good dose of law and the sin gets worse. I'm envying and now I'm told not to envy. Now all I want to do is envy. The law is good, but sin produces law breaking in me, even though the law is good. Every now and then, different times of year, you're going to see lots of tree companies going around there pruning trees. And attached to the back of a big, giant truck is a wood chipper. And as they're cutting the tree down, they throw the, wood, the tree into that wood chipper, and it goes into the back of the big truck, right? Have you seen this happening? Okay, this is amazing. And uh, so if you go to the back of the truck and somebody says, what tree is in here? Most of us wouldn't, uh, I don't know, wood chips. An arborist could probably pick up a handful of chips. Oh, yeah, that's madrone. What? Okay. Uh, how, how do you know? So here's what we do. Here's what our sin does. Our sin is a wood chipper. We take the good things of the law, and we say, oh, I'll try some law out, and it just grinds that sucker out and turns into wood chips. And then we say, something's wrong with the law. That's like the wood chipper saying, there's something wrong with this tree. It keeps turning into wood chips. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin going on in us. The law is good, but the sin in our life, the, the realities of our flesh, uses the truth of the law to produce in us even more law-breaking. So we envy a little. And then the law tells us you shouldn't envy. And then we start going through the list of ways we do this. You know, why not? It's not a big deal. Envy is the fuel of the economy. If I didn't want more, I wouldn't try to grow my business. If I didn't want more, I wouldn't push for the promotion. If I didn't want more, if I didn't want to beat my neighbor, it wouldn't push me to put in, put in the hours. I've got to excel because the fuel of our economy is enemy. Look at the commercials on TV. The fuel of our economy. So I'm just participating in this great experiment. So why not? everybody else is envying. Why can't I just a little? There's nothing wrong with setting goals. So we just renamed it. I'm not envying. I just am setting a goal to have a taller truck than my neighbor. That's just good, healthy planning. It's a smart goal, too. If you don't know what it is, you're lucky. So why not? It's not that bad. A little envy never killed anybody. No one's getting hurt, and everybody is doing it. So what happens is the law introduces into me, it says, here, let me show you what it looks like to worship in your heart. It's to release from yourself the need for anything else other than God and to be satisfied in Him alone. And we immediately say, right. Like, that's never going to happen. And we just run the law through the wood chipper. Our sin and flesh just are inflamed to say, now I'm going to... Uh, challenge accepted. I'll show you what envy really looks like. And this is what our sin, sin does. A good God wouldn't tell me not to envy. 
A good God would understand the culture I live in. A good God would look at the situation I'm in, and He wouldn't put these arbitrary assignments on me that are totally impossible. God would never do this. So therefore, God isn't, is good, isn't good. So what, now what have I done? I've just decided I can redefine God. And now I'm not only envying, I'm creating gods. We call that idolatry. And if he makes me bad enough, I'll murder him. Would we, would we ever murder God? Of course not. Well, but I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it looks like we did. When God shows up and he doesn't meet our definition and do what we expect him to do, we kill him. And if we think we wouldn't have participated, we're fooling ourselves. The law is good, but the sin in us takes that which is good and that which is from God, and it runs it through the wood chipper, and it just makes it all the worse. Verse 9. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And he's using sort of a hypothetical situation saying, I I knew what sin was, but now that the law is introduced, it's just made it so much more. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Law is supposed to give us access to God, and instead in our rebellion and our sin to God's ways, it separates us from God, which leads to destruction, because God is the source of life. Finally, read verse 11 with me, and we're going to wrap it up with this. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Law is good. So what's your problem? And the answer is sin that is in us. The sin that is in us is the problem. We, can't, we can argue all day with what God should or shouldn't want or the way things should or shouldn't be, but the Bible is plain. The problem is not the law. The problem is not God. The problem is not the circumstances in the world around us. The problem is not the people around us. The problem we face that will destroy us is the sin within us. For those of us who have never put our faith in Christ for salvation, what we need is redemption. We need Christ to wash us clean, and the means by which we do that is by trusting that what he did on the cross was for us. How does that work with the law? What did we say we needed? We need our priest, and we need a blood sacrifice. Jesus is both of those things. But what good is a dead priest to you? A dead priest is not helpful. So Jesus rose from the dead three days later, and he is the priest that is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us forever. That's a good priest. Where on the routine, where we are struggling with the remaining sin in our life, we have a priest who is interceding for us with the Father, saying, atoned, my blood paid the price for this one. So sin is the problem. If those of us who haven't put faith in Christ, that's the only thing that will get us out of the pickle. But for those of us who are believers, you may or may not be aware of this, but we have a war with sin that remains. We have a struggle with sin that is ongoing. I don't don't know if you agree with me or not. But the good thing is, if you disagree with me, that just means you're not fighting the war. But if if we understand what God has called us to do, He said, "Having having made you holy, I am going to call you to live holy in accordance with the identity I have given you, all of a sudden that's going to run crossways with everything in our system. What did Jesus say? I tell you, don't just forgive seven times. Forgive seven times, 77,000 times. I'm exaggerating, because he was. Is it, does that seem impossible to anybody? Anybody good at forgiveness? If you are, you should do a class. 
I can forgive somebody once, and it's sort of like forgiveness. Like they get data once, and I'm not going to let it bother me. They do it a second time. Now they're just rude. I do it a third time. You're cut off, bro. That's not quite what Christ has called us into. Jesus calls us into forgiveness that goes to a cross. Well, that's kind of, that seems impossible. Then we're going to need Jesus to help us. God calls us to be satisfied wholly in Him in Him and Him alone, not in the things of this world, not in our relationships, not in our circumstances, not in the good things of life or the bad things of life. Well, that sounds hard. How am I supposed to be satisfied in, in Him and Him alone? So we're, as believers, we're at a war with sin. Sin is still in me because I am not raised from the dead yet, and sin is still in you because you're not raised from the dead yet. We... We are wired to want to rebel, to do what feels good and feels right according to our own eyes. And the Bible calls us to seek to be holy because he has already made us holy as an act of worship. Three quick things and then we're going to move towards communion. Jesus had to die. The law is used by sin to bring death. So in order for Jesus to give us redemption, he had to die to fulfill the law on our behalf. So Jesus had to die. So if we say on the one hand, it seems harsh that the law kills sinners. On the other hand, we say God is gracious and loving and kind because he took the death for us. So Jesus dies for us. So we are with him. We can have access to God through Christ's sacrifice by grace and faith alone. He saves us from our sin, not because we're obedient, but because we're disobedient, and he calls us to believe in him. Second thing, if you are a believer today and you're walking with the Lord, here's two things you might take away from this. We need two things in our life. We need transformation and we need correction. What's transformation? That's the work of the Holy Spirit through His Word, through the people in my life, through circumstances in my life, to make you and I more and more like Jesus. Transformation is fantastic because it means when I am like Jesus, I buy uh, my own desire of Christ. I desire to do the things of God. I don't have to do them. I want to do them. That's inner transformation, where the, the inner man or the inner person is made to be like Christ, and we desire the things of Christ and want to do them. But there's remaining sin, so we also need correction. Every now and then, we need the Bible, and we need people around us to tell us, you know, that's wrong. We love the idea of transformation. That sounds, it's, a, it's a, in fact, a real popular word among like sort of the self-help circles. We've got a transformative seminar for you to attend. How many seminars would be sold out? Say, please come to this seminar. It's going to be corrective. We're going to give you a long list of things you need to stop doing because they'll kill you. That would be a hard sell. But the scripture teaches us we need both. Because we're blind to our blindness. We don't see what other people see. And when, what we tend to do, though, is when somebody comes up to us and puts our armor on and says, Hey, just want to let you know, you said this or hurt my feelings. And instantly we accuse them. You know what your problem is? You're oversensitive. You're a legalist. I knew you were a closet legalist. You need to come to me with grace when we actually didn't realize that correction is an act of grace. So we need both. We need to read the Bible. And when it tells us something is wrong, we need to agree with the Bible and not explain to the Bible why it's wrong. So we need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, but also we need to be corrected that we might, by God's grace, repent and say, Lord, there's still sin remaining in me and I need your help. 
to overcome it. Okay, look at Romans 7, 12. We're going to close with this verse. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. So here's the downside of what this means. God is God, you are not, and you need to be told what to do. Who loves authority? You know, we like having a boss at work because we dream about the day we have his job. Of course, then once you get his job, you realize he had a boss, and it never ends. We don't like authority. We don't like the fact that somebody could tell me what to do. And this is a real challenge, I think, especially in our particular culture. There's some cultures where authority is honored and excited. people are excited about having authority. Our culture, we're not so excited about it. God is God. He's not asking our permission. He is saying, here's what it looks like to worship me. Worship me, how? Spend time praying with me. Worship me, how? Know me through my word. Worship me, how? Join with the people of God and engage with worship. Here's a couple of things that you're going to realize as you're reading your Bible. Sundays you're going to read the Bible, you don't have to turn the pages. Like it's so amazing, pages just turn, and it's just, it's just and you walk away glowing. You have to wear a, a, a veil like Moses did coming off Mount Sinai. It was so amazing, you didn't need to Instagram it to make it awesome. There's other days reading your Bible will feel like reading sawdust. And you're just going, are you serious I'm supposed to do this? First, I don't understand the thing I'm reading. Second, it is boring. Third, there are some crazy people in here. Like who did some crazy stuff that they wouldn't even put on TV. And, and, and so sometimes we read it and it's amazing. And other times we read it and it is a chore. Worship is both. Worship is engaging with God with our effort, but also at times engaging with God when His Spirit is just moving. Church is the same way. God calls us to worship wherever we are, but God calls us in particular to come together every now and then and worship together as a body of believers. Some days you come in here and Seth has picked all your favorite songs. It's like he read your email to that other person you sent about how much you didn't like the songs last week. And he picked all your favorite songs. And and the message, it's, it's as though... It's as though God gave me an outline that you wrote and you needed. And when church is over, you don't even move your feet. You float out to your car. And then other days you come to church, today might be one of them. And you're going, why did I even bother? These people are crazy. Nobody talked to me. The guy up talking is out of his mind. The music, what are you thinking? And then you leave, you go, why did I even bother? And that's where we have redefined worship as a body of believers. Worship is good when it's good according to whether I liked it. The Bible tells us worship is good according to whether or not he liked it. And it's defined by what's going on in our heart. Sometimes the greatest, most pleasurable thing God receives is when we come, whether either to the the scripture or to prayer or gathering together as believers, we say, you know what, right now I'm not into this, but I know God is, so I'm going to be. God, accept what it is from me today. That's okay. Sometimes we love worship, other times we don't, and both can bring glory to the Father. The law is good. The problem is the sin that remains in us, and there's a place for our humble response to God to say, God, I still need you today to help me overcome sin. And I need you to have access to your presence.